Time for our first Techie Talk of 2024 with State Representative Techie Chan of Quincy. Happy New Year, Techie. Happy New Year, Joe. It's great to see you in 2024. Hard to believe. Here we are. Brand new year. How are your holidays? Uh, very quiet. Um, we did a Christmas dinner. Uh, my nephew came up uh, from Virginia and we had a great catch up with everyone. And my mom was a little tired um, going into like eight o'clock. So it's a pretty quick dinner. My sister-in-law, unfortunately, was ill. So that, again, second year in a row, we got one out of two spouses from my brother's family. And... Um, you know, and I made dinner and it was a, I, th I didn't send you a picture of this year's dinner, but that was a couple of days of putting it together. And, um, you know, we reached that age. We don't really need presents uh, at that point, this point. I mean, we, at a certain age, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as important, right? So, and just a quiet uh, break. Um, I spent a lot of time getting stuffed out at home. Um, you know, just uh, home repairs here and there. Um, you know, talking you know, like a little electric burner for the electric burner for the stove and so forth. There was a whole lot of that kind of stuff being done around the house. And, you know, I finally got around to pick up those giant tree branches from the storm uh, well, four weeks ago in the front yard. I was dragging, dragging tree branches around last week when the weather was good, trying to just get them off the front yard. So, so yeah, I mean, I wish I could say it was very eventful. Uh, the one other thing, of course, you, you may not be aware is that uh, for the purpose of campaign finance, uh, it's a calendar year. So, you know, last week was also last dash on uh, figuring what campaign donations were, figuring out what campaign expenses are. Uh, this week is reconciliation on your campaign expenses for disclosure. So you're properly disclosing and a year end report is due um, January 22nd. So I generally keep up with this stuff on a monthly basis. So I'm not really concerned. Um, but again, you know, it was a quiet week going to new year and quiet start to the year, it was a good chance to, uh, no joke, I play up a lot of paperwork to make sure that my uh, campaign finance report is in compliance. That's good. We certainly want to make sure everything is legit with the state. Um, I know the Secretary of State just this week uh, drew the names for the uh, the order of ballot for the primary on March 5th. Yeah, I expect to be a very quiet a primary, to be honest with you. Um, uh, the ballot, you know, does positioning matter? Probably not. I mean, you know, it, it, I know it does matter in cases where you have much more low profile races. People sometimes just instinctively picks the first thing on the ballot just because that's what a lot of candidates hope is that they just take the first name and that's that. Um, that's not always the case, particularly high profile races where a lot more name recognition uh, that that doesn't really matter. Um, what's actually pretty interesting is that uh, the President Biden is not on the ballot in the New Hampshire primary because the Democratic National Committee has made South Carolina the first primary for the Democratic primary. But uh, New Hampshire's law states that they have to be the first one. They move their dates around in the primary based on whatever the first primary is. So um, there's a writing campaign attempt for President Biden uh, because New Hampshire is not going to have a second election for the Democratic primary. I don't know why this was lost on the people at the Democratic National Committee that we all know here that the primaries are set by the states and uh, the dates are set by statute or provided to a, a, a person in charge of dealing with this, in many cases, the Secretary of State, um, on when these dates occur. So uh, I got some interesting emails from um, the Moore Healy campaign and the Bill Keating campaign it's about you know, organizing for uh, Joe Biden writing campaign in New Hampshire. Hmm, interesting. So they will not have the first in the nation primary? No, they are first in the nation primary because of the law they have. Oh. So they're not doing a second primary, but for purposes of Democratic National Committee, the first in the Democratic uh, primary is South Carolina. But it doesn't make sense because even though the Democratic National Committee dictates which is the first primary, the state doesn't go along with it. And, you know, is this is what happens. So mm -hmm. there will not be a second uh, primary in New Hampshire unless mm -hmm. the legislature changed the law to have another primary in New Hampshire. So this is fine for an incumbent president with nominal opposition, uh, but this is going to be a problem uh, if you don't have an incumbent Democratic president. Uh, uh, and it becomes an open primary situation. And it, this becomes kind of... Um, uh, problematic. And again, this also reminds everyone on the call here that 
states do dictate local elections for federal offices. Mm-hmm. It's a shrine in the Constitution that that's how it's done. But, and here's the but, uh, primary races, party races, uh, are not uh, part of um, what we consider like a federal uh, elections. Federal elections uh, for uh, final candidates are in the Constitution. Uh, choosing a party nominee to go to that final is a state by state whatever right. decision making. Like you know, there's a caucuses around the country, um, but they don't have to have a caucus. They could change the law, uh, or uh, some states may not even want to address the law and just let the local party figures figure it out. For example, at the local level, um, if a uh, nominee dies or is incapacitated or denies the nomination after winning. Uh, the primary, the local Democratic or local Republican city or town committee, depending where you are, can choose the next candidate in some mm. places. Some places uh, can choose a candidate in case of death prior to a primary, for example. Uh, uh, an example of that is um, um, Nyman, Bob Nyman in Hanover, many years ago, died prior to the prime Democratic primary. And the Hanover uh, Town Committee picked Rhonda, his wife, uh, to be the nominee, even though nomina- pa- nomination papers have been closed because he died in July and then, you know, September primary. So there is no like, special election for a nominee. Uh, right, right. Yeah. The, the party has its internal mechanisms. So primary politics confuses a lot of folks because it's like, you know, who, who, uh, actually chooses how these Democratic and Republican, of course, Libertarian, Green Party, other parties, you know, nominees to run on the final ballot works. In some cases, the state law has a lot to say with it. In some cases, it's a little bit more uh, formal, informal, for example, in caucus forms, or, you know, as I just said an example, uh, in the case of uh, tragedy uh, during a, a campaign, whether it be pre-primary, post-primary, a lot is left to the local political party. Hmm. Okay, Civics 101 from Representative Chan today. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, you can, as your viewers know and listeners know, I, I do pay too much attention to these little nuances in politics. Uh, and it's also reflective of many years of, of you know, watching campaigns. Not like I watch, you know, all 160 House and 40 House and Senate races. Not like I watch 200 races. But, um, you know, I do pay a little bit of attention. And uh, like, you know, Dan Webb's is another example. You know, he's a, you got the Republican nominee and then um, resigned after the Republican nominee. And then they essentially, uh, the local party essentially appointed uh, a replacement for um, Webster uh, in that race, for example. Another one, I think it's Pembroke. Uh, that was that case. So, you know, there's, there's some, you know, some simple examples. And of course, we have a special election coming up. The uh, Representative Durant's seat, which is in Worcester um, County. Uh, actually, I think it's next Tuesday. I'm mm. trying to remember correctly. I think it's it's coming up next Tuesday for that special election. And the funny thing is, you know, the, the way the statute's set up, hang on, I'm going to look at my form really fast. Um, uh, when is it? Um, I think, I'm sorry, I think it's in, uh, it's Tuesday the 6th in February. So oh, okay. when's that's uh, 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 becomes the state rep, but nomination papers for re-election for, for 2024 will occur sometime in mid-late February. So by the time this person wins the February 6th special election, they're starting all over running for office again, getting nomination papers to run because the state law dictates that, um, you know, you have to have a special election uh, and a primary election uh, within 90 to 180, it was 120 to 90, 90 to 120 days set by the legislature. So yeah. after the resignation, the last one. So when Peter Durant resigned from the House, it was prior to the beginning of the year. Uh, so he could take a special election seat for the Senate. So that's one there, a vacant seat triggered, requiring for the legislature to pick a day. And then um, it actually creates this kind of corporate thing is literally you win a seat and you got to start running all over again for nomination papers with literally like days later. Right. Yeah, we saw the same thing here in the city in Ward 4. Yeah, in the case of the uh, city of Quincy, uh, under its charter, if you're uh, a counselor and you re- leave office uh, for any reason prior 
to the, uh, let me rephrase that. Uh, in the first half of your term, first year of your term, you have to run a special election. Doesn't matter what day, as long as it's the first uh, year of your term. Uh, if you resign or leave for any reason uh, in the second year of your term, then it's appointed by uh, the city council. Right. Yep. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. Well, what's happening at the state house these days, Jackie? No, it's been very quiet. Um, yeah. You know, there was a ceremonial opening session uh, yesterday. Not a lot of people, not a lot of fanfare. The Constitution requires this, uh, even though we run a two-year session under the rules. Under the Constitution, our sessions are set on the one-year calendar. Uh, but uh, even though it, that's how the Constitution works, I mean, the internal functioning of the legislature is up to both branches of how they actually do operations, and that's the rules. Joint Route 10, I talk about it all the time, February 7th, it's coming up. Hope to uh, sell my co-chair and, and get through uh, the remainder of the list of things we, we would like to get done. I will send a list over again, and we'll negotiate sometime in January. Obviously, the mayor's inaugural is coming up on Monday, um, 10 a.m. The mayor's swearing in, and uh, he has an evening inaugural. And uh, obviously, the city of Boston's mayor is on Tuesday night. Um, we're looking at uh, likely the governor's budget being released the 24th of January, pursuant to law. That's a Wednesday. And we also expect the governor to have her state of state address on the 24th. That's kind of what we're projecting out right now. Um, and uh, the legislature... Committees have been having public hearings all through December, believe it or not. Uh, but as we come across joint rule 10, you know, people at least have all the bills heard under the rules. So there is a crunch from a lot of committees to get these bills heard. Now, not to brag, but all my big hearings were done before August 1st. Hmm. And I had some sweep up hearings in the fall. So um, not like I'm bragging, but I'm very cooperative and helpful, very helpful co-chair. I was willing to uh, get the lion's share of the work done before the August break. Um, and uh, gave us more time in the fall to kind of focus on, on you know, what, what we think the priority should be on the committee. And like I said, until we agree, there is no priorities. I can't say anything I want, but to the coach, two chairs of the priorities, there are no priorities. So, yeah, you know, that, out there and see what sticks, right? Yeah. And um, obviously, we're watching uh, budget revenues, as you've probably seen in the news. Uh, we're uh, well below projection right now for FY24. Uh, the governor's 9C cuts may be a real thing coming. Um, sometime in 2024, uh, if we didn't, we don't have great Christmas numbers, and we should be getting DOR, DOR, um, Department of Revenue uh, budget numbers. I'm looking at the calendar in the bottom of my screen, probably by the end of this week, uh, for uh, January revenue numbers, December revenues. It gives a new projection going into um, tax season, um, and obviously we're going to start the budget process. So I should get a notice from the Ways and Means Chair soon for most likely a meeting in late February, early March. Um, to discuss budget request priorities. And my office has set up meetings with uh, agencies, my committee oversees to discuss their budget priorities and where their other policy priorities or policies are, uh, their, their priorities remain of the session. Um, and then uh, once short routine gets through, we'll have a better sense, you know, what, what the big bills are coming out. So, um, so yeah, this is really a setup month. Everything's trying to get set up for the remaining six months of formal sessions. Speaking of uh, your priorities, what are some of the things you'd like to see happen in this uh, new year? Well, uh, some of the stuff is actually really more of a interesting uh, behind the scenes work. For example, obviously, you all know my data, data equity bill got done. We still need to have regulations promoted by administration finance. We got those meetings being set up. Uh, we're talking about um, cons uh, better uh, consumer notification on uh, gaming, particularly uh, gambling addiction. Working with DPH and Dad, and try to work with the Gaming Commission on on some better data collection and some clarity on you know, information on compulsive gambling. Um, you know, we are working on some stuff on the committee. I mean, we've talked about data privacy in the past. I want to do another reminder at some point today about uh, consumer uh, protection and safety regarding new fraud uh, things coming out. That no matter what law you pass, it's still up to the to all of us to try to not uh, try our best not to be scammed. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of it is looking at, you know, some of those consumer bills, um, you know, ticket reselling. I know everyone has an issue regarding uh, the value of market, market value of tickets in secondary market, you know, looking to try to close this book finally on the regulatory process uh, on the secondary market tickets regarding uh, property disclosures um, and also greater oversight by the state on uh, these ticket resellers. 
Um, I can't control the price, folks. Uh, this is the one they always want to do. You know, make it. You know, control the price. This is this is not a regulated industry like um, that. Like used to be when the plane industry, remember airlines used to be regulated. This, the feds used to regulate the price of plane tickets. Um, the, 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 we can't do that, but we can try to you know create some better disclosures and try not to do bait and switch and things like that on 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 secondary markets. So we're we're looking at we're trying to figure it out. We're, we're probably going to try to get it done this year. Um, you know, anticipating of the climate, but even though it's not on my committee. I was on the committee, uh, conference committee last time out uh, on a climate, you know, energy bill. So um, I'm trying to get some field trips set up on some energy, uh, renewable energy technologies, nothing on the market today, um, but something, you know, down the road to, to get a sense of where we're going to be regarding new tech on future climate change prevention through new energy development. So working on those field trips, I got the beer distributors, um, Field trip coming up for the committee members. So we're going to go have the committee members visit a beer distributor, visit the warehouses, show them the nuts and bolts of how, you know, you get your beer. Um, so, yeah, it's a combination of some legislation, you know, some field trips for the committee, some personal field trips on, you know, continuing education for myself. Um, and it's election cycle, folks, 2024. So I'm um, gearing up uh, for any potential candidates, uh, which translates to, you know, continued fundraising, you know, planning to get my nomination papers signed quickly. Um, and then, you know, and then start, um, you know, start planning out in case there is one, you know, what, what the plan is. So, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of different things in my mind that I'm juggling. Of course, got a personal life, such as this. <laughs> so the, obviously the state constitutional officers are not up this year, right? We've already done that. That's correct. I mean, it's every four years for them, and we're in that bicycle. Uh, the uh, when it's not a president, it's the, it's the state constitutional officers. So I say we easily remember it. The county officials are a little tricky because some are four and some are six. Right. So county's always a little bit tricky, and of course, all of Congress is up, and yeah. Senator Warren's up this year. Um, you know, obviously, there won't be a Democratic primary of any seriousness for for the U.S. Senate. I don't see any of the congressional delegation in the state facing. Very serious challenge, to be honest. Um, but on the state delegation, um, some seats were very close. You may recall two seats um, last year in the House had to be decided by the House on review of ballots. Because, mm. You know, the Constitution gives the uh, House the ability to review uh, House contested races. And um, we went with the winner, uh, which just happened Democrats, but they did have the majority of ballots by a hair. Yeah. And uh, obviously, people in close races, seats tend to um, be picked up again um, in a final election situation. Um, and obviously, we're in Massachusetts, where um, Democrat and Republicans uh, now primary each other uh, more often than they have in the past. Uh, it's not just uniquely Democrat and Republican Party as well. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I tell folks, you're going to fundraise and prepare for your next elections in terms of strategizing, you know, get ready, always get ready for two campaigns. You got to be um, able to finance and uh, operate uh, two potential campaigns and just hope only one happens or even perhaps best case, none. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, you're obviously running again, Taggy. I am. I am. Uh, uh, I hope you all still like me. Uh, can't say that everyone does. I mean, I'm not um, that kind of person that believes that, you know, everyone has to love me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, been a good run, having a lot of fun still, uh, as you can all tell by me and Joe in our weekly conversations. Uh, and, you know, it's a great stimulation, but, you know, at some point, like everybody else, we'll decide to know the career change. But right now, uh, I'm not looking for one. And uh, to, my, to my knowledge, the entire delegation, uh, yeah. Mariano and Bruce Ayers and, uh, Senator Keenan, all of us are running for re-election. Yeah, Ron even said he wants to continue as speaker, too. So he's obviously enjoying it. <laughs> well, we don't have to vote for speaker in 2024. So right. he's pretty much guaranteed a job for at least another year. Uh, <laughs> Ron isn't listening to this. He's like, what is Tacky saying now? But uh, <laughs> you know, speakership is a two-year uh, two term. Um, uh, but, you know, anything can happen. Uh, but you know, I haven't talked to the speaker uh, before since before the holiday. And, um, you know, he seems to be having a lot of fun. He's in good health. Um, 
you know, obviously there was a bit of stress in the month of December as we don't want to rehash because of this weird supplemental budget procedural thing I had to teach you all already. So you can go back and listen to that very boring podcast of technical stuff from me uh, on how rules work. Um, but yeah, no, he's, you know, he's done a great job leading the building. And I think uh, one of the things that was understated is the volume of uh, major pieces of legislation has been able to move in relatively short period of time, whether it be econ dev or windmills or healthcare, um, and, you know, get it to the governor's desk. And uh, honestly, the, the body is actually fairly well, well managed um, despite uh, COVID. Um, and you have basically two classes that were elected, uh, basically three almost. The 2019 class you know, went to 2020 COVID. They had the 21 class um, that was a, a sworn in and mostly empty building. Mm-hmm. And then you have the 23 class, which is the first in-person class for a full term. So you have basically three classes uh, that have gone through um, much more difficult transition in the building in terms of learning how things work, engaging the chair is engaging other membership, engaging leadership, engaging the governor's folks. I mean, if you're not physically there, it actually makes it a little tougher. But you know, the speakers you know done a great job on um, you know making sure all the members have been heard and you know, accessibility has been very good with the speaker. And uh, I've never heard of anybody say that. And the speaker did not listen to them. Everybody, uh, you know, has sufficient accessibility. They, they don't feel like they've been slighted. And I see that uh, former Governor Baker's portrait has been unveiled. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. It'll be oh. in the. Uh, I'll probably have to pop into the governor's office, and we'll see who gets bumped off. Uh, yeah. They have, they have about a dozen or so uh, most recent governor's portraits in the governor's lobby, but at some point there's no more space. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, they do for the whole walls. So I'm curious of who gets on the uh, who on the end is bumped off because I can't name you uh, governors before Volk, Volpe. So okay. uh, it gets to a point where I just look at the pictures too. I'm like, I, I can't name these. Um, but uh, no, it's uh, a tradition continues. And, um, you know, the governor, uh, Baker, I mean, you know, gets a portrait. Um, I'm actually not sure what's going on in the state Senate because uh, that also happens with passing the presidents. But we've, oh. people remember in uh, 2017 going to 18, there was all kinds of Senate president drama. Yes. So I'm not sure what's going to go on over there. Uh, oh, the interesting. House members get photographs, House speakers get photographs. Hey, you go to speaker's office, you can see the photographs of um, many, many House speakers um, and prior. Uh, as opposed to the Senate, which will hang um, um, some of them in the Senate reading room. Um, you know, maybe there'll be uh, there'll be pictures, uh, old pictures in the um, Senate uh, presence lobby, which I haven't actually visited in some time. But yeah, these are old traditions. Um, but in particular, you know, the portrait for the um, the governor. I think the portrait is actually privately paid for. Right? Because or I think it was from his campaign account or something like that, but not public funds. Yeah. Yeah, it is not publicly funded that portrait. It's it's yeah, campaign funds or private other private money has to pay for that portrait. Right. And right. the portrait that you pay for and you you basically gift to um, gift to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Right, because you own it if you paid for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's essentially what happens. You gift it. So yeah. uh so yeah, if you're worried about your taxpayer dollars going at it's my understanding that your taxpayer is not paying for that portrait. Right. Yeah, that's uh, well he's having fun now running the NCAA, so <laughs> Well, hey, March Madness is only a little bit, uh, yeah. a little bit ways off. So I'm sure that uh, he's uh, getting calls from all his buddies for tickets. I'm sure that's true too. <laughs> uh, hey, I understand that uh, the legislature is going to be looking over some uh, ballot questions that got the uh, got the okay this week. Oh, did they? I yeah. I, I miss I missed that boat. Apparently, I got to look at status news. Uh, yeah, I mean, they got the, this round in. Those those ballot questions go to the respective committees, and then um, if the if the legislature actually doesn't become law by, I believe, the first week of May, you know, then the ballot initiatives will have to go for a second round of um, signatures uh, to get done by August, and then they're preparing to get on the ballot in the ballot campaign, and you have a formation of ballot committees at campaign office of campaign finance, mm-hmm. and you know they they will fundraise for that, so. Uh, catch me up to speed. Which which ballot questions have uh, have been certified? 
Uh, two that stand out are one um, eliminating the the service wage, you know, the wage for tipped workers, uh, and number two, the one that would um, deal with uh, app based drivers, uh, if you will. Okay, so the first one is about uh, the so-called minimum wage for uh, service workers, such as servers in restaurants. Uh, I believe it's like six dollars and twenty-five cents currently. If you don't uh, seventy-five, I think yeah, seventy-five. So yeah, that's the minimum pay per hour. And then if I remember how the, I'm trying to remember how this law works, it's been a while. But if you you get the six seventy-five on top of tips, but if your tip wage hours don't equal the minimum wage, you have to pay minimum wage. Right. You got it. Yep. I believe this actually increases the the minimum to to the minimum wage. Correct. Yep. Uh, Sixty six seventy five and eliminates the concept of tip tip differential, so you don't have the balance differential. Right. Um, well, one of the few countries that tip, by the way, most people don't realize this. Yeah, I didn't realize that either until I started reading about it. Yeah, I would never leave the country. It's always a little shocking. Although they do expect so called tourists, they look like a tourist. They almost expect you to just leave something extra because they know you're from America. But, um, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, if they find you from America, they actually expect it. Um, but certain countries don't. Like if you live a tip in Japan, it's incredibly insulting. Very oh, insulting. really? Yeah, very, very insulting. Um, because from their standpoint, they're wage workers and or hourly workers, and their expectations you do your job, you do it well, and you know, mm -hmm. and they, you know, you shouldn't have to give extra money for folks that you know are um, uh, pride in their pride in their job. So mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's part of it too. Um, the second one is a little bit controversial because uh, only part of the uh, unions uh, want to back this, but regarding app-based drivers, app-based drivers trying to create a strange hybrid situation with some collective bargaining for your um, rideshare folks, you know, Uber and Lyft, where they have some like you know some collective bargaining component, and then they're kind of like treated like full-time employees, but they're also not treated like full-time employees. So imagine if you're uh, um, an employee that can, you know, for any boss, they can pick your own hours. And you can show up when you want to show up and work when you want to work, but you want to have the same benefits, you know, as if your boss told you when to show up. It's really uh, uniquely a, a, a problem in that specific industry because of the nature of the economic model. So, yeah, it's a little peculiar um, in terms of compared to others like workplace um you know employee protections right. um, so right now they consider independent contractors because you know there's no prohibit for them from being on more than one app you can be an app share writer for uber you can app you're not exclusive you can be app share writer you can work for competition right. um, because then that makes them independent contractors but they want the ability to have like full-time status sick days you know uh health care food benefits as if they were a, a dedicated employee um, uh, even though they do have the option to, you know, let's say work for UPS and, you know, do deliveries for Uber under off time, for example. Um, it's, it's very, it's a very interesting, you can just hear from those words, it's pretty um, intricate um, employee uh, labor laws. And I think the public's going to have a hard time getting their head around this, as I just gave you a very small example of, of, you know, what you may think like, oh, you can't work for a competitor. Well, yeah, you can if you're an independent contractor. Right. Yeah, that's right. Because you get a 1099 from anybody you work for, right? Yeah. I mean, just think about this, guys. If, if you know, you're working for Uber and your competition's Lyft, but Uber doesn't say you can't work for another competitor. You could work for both companies. So I think you could probably work for them simultaneously because you just have I'm, to. I've seen both stickers on some cars. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, name me another employer that likes the idea of a full time employee working for a competitor. Not going to happen. I don't think people at McDonald's uh, want their employees going to Burger King. Yeah, uh, but it's, yeah, exactly. And you know, same thing with realtors, right? You don't want your realtors working for competition and. You know, okay, fine. You're like, well, they're contractors. Well, you know, would you even hire a contractor? You know, let's say that you hired an accounting contractor, you know, for your business, but your competitors across the street, you would want to, you know, you, you know, how comfortable are you? Even though they have confidentiality clauses for accountants, accountants can't disclose to other people what they're doing, but it's a mindset issue, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe in a smaller community, you only got a limited number of professional services, everyone uses the same people, but there's understanding right. that one has a non disclosure. You know, so there's no uh, unfair uh, competitive disadvantage. But, you know, but let's say you have an employee. Do you want your employee working for your competitor 
you know, after they work for you, or even worse in the case of this app-based ballot question, simultaneously working for your competitor. Right. So they can be, you know, working for you and taking calls for your competitor across the street, you know, at the same time. Again, this is uniquely um, a ride-share uh, economic model uh, yeah. for the employees and, and the contractors. So, you know, it, it, it could tell, you could see, I kind of get the basics of the intricacy here. And I it's think very it's very gray. It's very gray area, yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult to convey to the public intricacies of how this works because, you know, obviously, you know, people want um, people to be treated well as employees. Uh, but then again, you as a, a, a consumer dictates the life or death of of that ride share. If you mm-hmm. go below a certain percentage of customer satisfaction, you're no longer allowed to drive for Uber. That's one of the conditions of contract. Right, right. And then are these companies, are they required to provide, you know, health insurance, retirement benefits, uh, you know, uh, things of that nature, vacation time. How do you determine all that? Uh, good question. I'm not sure, but, it, but yeah, essentially, yes. They want to make the rideshare companies a employer, make them as full-time employees, right. but the employees get all the benefits of being a contractor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So including, including non-compete, they don't have to do non-compete. Right. Yeah. Be an interesting one to see for sure read that and they're in the real red booklet that they're going to put out and try and figure it out <laughs> oh god it's gonna be awful uh <laughs> these kinds of ballot questions are different and the, and the campaigns are going to be so simplified and they probably are skirting the truth of the advertising you know it's it's again i, I expect the advertising campaign be you know largely done by um real life employees of both sides you know one side dictating they like how things are another side dictating how much it's awful and why it's awful and other side saying why it's great and it's probably going to be you know putting advertising of of competing um employees or contractors it's a little complicated contractors yeah. employers yeah contractor is not an employee um and the you're going to see what i've just done um mixing two words up um the advertising for this is going to be very tricky too because i can see uh, people not understanding unless you work as one mm-hmm treating the two very clearly um, right. and advertising is going to muck it up <laughs> well they they cherry pick what, what will benefit their cause basically yeah essentially yes yeah. so um, um i know another question was uh the removal of mcas as a graduation requirement i know we've talked about this in the past yeah I mean, mcas always makes me nervous as a person who standardized tests very poorly and you know i amazingly got into college and amazingly actually passed mm-hmm exam and I did go to an exam school which is BC High so I mean yeah I've not been a good um exam person uh, I don't lie about that to people um I've always considered education that you got to be literate and you can do math and you can do everything else afterwards mm. uh, MCAS requires basically like liberal arts education plus uh, going to a college and I've always scratched my head about some of these other topics you know do you really need to teach towards the exam and that's where we are I mean you know I didn't uh, go to school teaching towards uh, an exam. Um, it was, you know, highly uh, focused on education, on the basics of, of what you need to know and be able to learn more. So, you know, you have the skills to be able to learn more because you have right. the basics down. So uh, one of the criticisms, and a fair criticism, folks, is that, you know, our education system is now um, geared towards teaching to an exam. Uh, uh, higher demands in the, on, on school departments and teachers uh, regarding education. And there's also new pressure. Uh, you know, people do pick uh, uh, where they want to go move to based on things like MCAS scores, based on things like college graduation rates, based on high school passage rates. And since the high school passage rate is based on the MCAS, uh, you know, it can dictate property prices. It puts a lot of pressure on communities to teach towards the exam and uh, you all may not be aware of it but it's true people want to go to communities with better education and an arbitrary exam in some ways I mean, not always but in some ways it dictates uh, mm-hmm. which school teaches best towards an exam mm-hmm. yeah, so again yeah again i mean i have no problem you know making sure that people get the fundamentals now but, you know, uh, my joke's always been the same, you know, from the Incredibles 2 movie, when did math did not become math, right? Um, you know, it gets to the point where I, I swear uh, people with too many letters in front of a name uh, that has never been in a classroom setting trying to teach this stuff, dictating um, 
to people would actually have to be in the trenches, uh, working tirelessly, educating our children. Mm. Uh, you know exactly what we're educating uh, people on. So, mm-hmm. and again, there's a lot of new pressures on you know, school departments and teachers regarding minimum requirements, and the MCAS is one of them. So, I've always had a head scratcher regarding you know the people actually making decisions on exams. Are you are you teaching in a classroom currently? The answer is probably. Right, must not, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I always find that uh, kind of um, problematic. I mean, my attitude is that you're going to do this stuff. You better be teaching in a classroom if you're dictating these exams. You all yeah. better be teaching in a classroom. And I'm going to tell you not. I don't care if you taught in the past. You're not teaching towards the current curriculum. Right, yeah. You know, we had yeah. a funny, I won't, I won't get into names, but, we, you know, we had an HR problem regarding, like, uh, you know, how do we actually do offer letters and whatnot. And it's like, you can't do an offer letter until you uh, get the offer confirmed. You're like, then how does that work? <laughs> yeah, hey, thank you. That was my reaction. So uh, again, uh, my attitude's always been, you know, if you're going to dictate the policy, you better at least try to do it yourself or at least be an active practice. I mean, as a person to board registration on division professional licensure, you know, uh, the statute requires the boards of registrations um, mostly to have actual professional experience, plus people with non-professional experience as consumer advocates. Mm. And we designate different professions, you know, different practices. So you have a diversity of people in that practice that take the regulations of the implementation of regulations in certain industries. Conversely, the ABCC is an example where, you know, Alcohol Beverage Control Commission has nobody on the commission that has any alcohol experience whatsoever. Conversely, at the DPU, the Department of Public Utilities, there is a minimum requirement for certain individuals to have certain experience in utilities, telecom industries. So even in government, you know, people who regulate industries, they're all different regarding um, the regulators, the the commissioners, Mm -hmm. the the board of registration, and so forth. Um, And you get mixed results. based on the expertise or lack of regarding your commissioners. And, you know, this is kind of my attitude, you know, things like GEMCAS, right? I mean, right. you know, people that should be on the ground doing this every day should, should be, you know, writing, writing these regulations because they see what's really happening. And, but this is my attitude. I mean, because I've, I've been doing most of my adult life, you know, consumer stuff and, um, you know, things regarding regulated industries. Yeah. Seeing as we're talking about education, Tacky, I don't know if you want to talk about the fallout at Harvard, maybe not specifically, but, you know, higher education in, in general. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're listening to this, you can't see the sighing face I have over here. <laughs> um, yeah, as, as, uh, as I get older, I mean, I get greatly concerned about higher education because obviously, you know, I come from a family that values education. Um, and, you know, my dad pushed us very, 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 very hard. A lot of areas there uh, regarding, you know, being committed to education and working hard at it and, and getting ahead. And um, but I also value the fact that, you know, we need a free flow of ideas, particularly in higher education, to share opinions. Um, but at the same time, though, you know, it seems that uh, their uh, fear of, you know, taking stances on what we all of us see as a degree of, I don't know, morality um, uh, to require people to maintain the basic standards of understanding that certain things in the world are just bad. I don't know, genocide's bad. I just, I don't know what people think anywhere in the conversation. That's a good thing to advocate for. Um, You know, white supremacy in this country is bad, right? Um, Sexual harassment is bad, right? The cultural problems in higher education has been revealed. And uh, cultural education, uh, I'm sure the culture of uh, educational facilities driven from the top, who sets the policy of standard for expectation of the people who go to school there. Mm-hmm. And expectation is not just, you know, going to class. Expectation is, you know, adhering to a code of conduct. And, um, for example, you know, diverging quickly, you know, you know, I was a big advocate for supporting uh, sexual assault, sexual harassment um, of students uh, survey. And that got gummed up in the state legislature for far, far too long until we were to actually get onto the governor's desk. Uh, I believe um, it was the middle of COVID, actually, um, end of 20, uh, 2020, um, end of 2020, 
you know, we'll be together at the governor's desk after languishing for too long on something I thought was pretty common sense because the universities were not taking the initiative on that. And you go back in time, you know, Title IX, uh, people can talk about Title IX all the time about, you know, equity in school systems for women uh, in higher ed. But that provision no one talks about that was struck up by the U.S. Supreme Court was to be Title IX qualified. You actually had to have um, proper ways to address, address uh, sexual harassment and sexual abuse of women on campuses. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court struck that out of Title IX many, many, oh. many yeah, it, that's the part that no one talks about. That that's actually very important, and as a result, universities kind of like you know pretend nothing bad happens, right? They're protecting the reputation over protecting their students, and this is what I'm getting at. I mean, um, you know, I I think college university students are adults, right? Period, um, and they should be held responsible for things they say and do. And you know, you're on you do you know you run the university, or college, or any other higher ed. And it's the responsibility of the administration to set the example um, and enforce code of conduct, whether it be, you know, going and addressing, you know, a harassment on campus, would be, you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault, improving safety, whether it be during the Hong Kong protests where there were uh, disruptions between the um, uh, uh, citizens from People's Republic of China versus, you know, demonstration of Hong Kong, demonstration of Hong Kong advocacy advocates, which didn't get a whole lot of conversation trying whether it be the Black Lives Movement or the anti-racism, uh, anti-Asian racism or Asian racism, as they call it. I don't know why anything anti, but straight up Asian racism. And then, you know, now and then you now have, you know, anti-Semitic uh, and anti-Arab, um, anti-Muslim, anti-Middle East uh, sentiment flowing through the U.S., and, um, you know, these universities, particularly this, you know, especially these so-called prestigious Ivy League ones, right, get the highest attention. And, um, you know, you don't, if you don't tolerate this in society, then why are they um, allowing it to be tolerated on their campuses? And campuses, I've always argued, uh, is a microcosm of society we live in. Uh, there's a, you know, active effort to create, you know, a diverse um, communities on campuses that reflects the world we live in. And uh, if you are unable to you know, say that certain things are just evil straight up, you know, then, you know, what are you? And uh, it's, 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 I do know that lawyers advise these guys on what they say and shouldn't say. Look, I, right. I get that. And as an attorney, you know, we always tell folks to you know, earn the side of caution and, you know, we always recommend the risk averse component um but exactly who are you placating to that's always been my question right i mean you know if you're leading a big organization uh, and you know you have donors and boards of trustees and funders and students and you know public perception um and i get there's a lot of pressure because when you put it in that context there's a lot of pressure because of all these different components when you lead a, a school but you know who are you exactly speaking to when those questions are asked right and, you know, and they bear responsibility uh, for that. And in many ways, as I described before, all these other movements and, you know, they can pick and choose which movement they want to you know, try to address or cover up, depending on how you want to look at this lens. You know, what, what, you know, what is going on here? So, you know, I, I thought the kind of the plagiarism thing was kind of an excuse. It, it sniffs of an excuse. I mean, to try to move someone along with a justification that is not the justification uh, that the public really wants to see. Right. No, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's, it's safe. It's a safe reason, I guess. Well, I mean, it isn't hard to catch somebody in a citation problem. Right. Let's be frank about that. I mean, you think that everybody is perfect on putting citations on academic papers that somehow that they're flawless on citations. Oh, of course not. You know, it's 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 impossible. Yeah. Yeah, because ninety nine percent of what you write is cited from somewhere else because you build a work of past academics. So, you know, yeah, was, you know, let's call it the call spade a spade, folks. I mean, they were looking for a uh, a termination of cause reason, and uh, it isn't hard to get one if you're just going to go after citation inaccuracies and plagiarism. So, um. Those of you who have ever written term papers and whatnot, or remember that, you know, 
think about it, you know, how insane it is to get those footnotes in, particularly mm-hmm. you know, doing this. And if you're a writer listening that, you know, write academic books and you got to do uh, citations and, you know, the challenge is there and, you know, there's, you know, can you be perfect every time? Well, I'm going to tell you probably not. No, no. If you were, the footnotes would be as long as the paper is, basically. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, footnoting is very important on, on giving accreditation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're all human, and you could have 100 eyes look at it. Uh, but, you know, the chances are somebody's going to find something, you know, somewhere. So, mm-hmm. you know, clearly this screams of we need a, uh, we need a reason to remove with cause um, and not even address cover-up not address, you know, the issue of anti-Semitic attitude from the administration. And uh, by the way, people may not realize this, but Harvard operated in a quota system. Uh, forget affirmative action. Long before this concept of affirmative action, mm-hmm. always uh, operated on a discriminatory model that if you weren't, you know, white Protestant male, you couldn't go to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Yep. Remember that, folks, a long time ago, long before this concept. So, you know, they had... You know, started these like little quota systems, um, especially with Jewish populations that could actually get to Harvard, um, and uh, you know these these small groups. Um, you know, those may be we're not aware. I did go to Brandeis University, which was founded because Jewish folks couldn't get to an Ivy League school. Right. It was a discrimination, and you know the idea was to try to break down the walls on on discrimination and through Brandeis. Um, and you know, that's one of their objectives. I know it's considered a very liberal school, but you know one of the objectives is to try to break down barriers. Um, and the school founders recognized that breaking down barriers would take decades, mm-hmm. years, and they're still doing it over there. Um, and sometimes successful, sometimes they're not. I mean, this is just being human. Um, so, so yeah, I mean. You know, Harvard, if you look at these Ivy League schools, I mean, let's not just look at a snapshot of the last decades. You've got to look at a snapshot of centuries to understand uh, the history of those schools, you know, not being open at all. Right. Yeah. Um, we're at the end of the hour, Jackie, believe it or not. Is it? That quickly already? Yeah. It's been so much fun. Time just flies. I've <laughs> been rambling for essentially the whole time. So uh, uh, it's always good to talk about... Um, off-topic stuff now with the legislature. I mean, as you all know, yeah. I kind of that, but yeah, can I do just a real quick consumer protection plug? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, no, just remind folks, I mean, even when the holidays are ended, we're going to tax season soon. The scams are back on, you know, people uh, speak more than one language uh, on global calls, um, Chinese being most popular that if you don't give us money, we're going to deport you, calls to start it up again. You may be seeing emails uh, saying that, you know, your Facebook account password's locked. Here's the um, code you need to access your Facebook uh, or TikTok or Twitter or X or whatever. You know, and you look at the email, you know, say like facemail.com or something like that. Delete it. If you know you never asked for the security password, definitely do that. Now it's actually happening on your cell phones too telling you to ask for security code, please click link. You didn't do it, you don't do it. Um, and then also there's deep fakes. And this is the one that's scary now, is now having more deep fakes. So wanted to forget about chat GDP. I mean, there's already current artificial intelligence technology now. Forget you, chat GDP. Where they can, you know, scourge the internet, find videos of you or images of you, and then proceed to send, you know, video images, whether it be, you know, by text message or video call, you know, of a questionable number. They try to convince you to give the money or, you know, potentially maybe a hostage situation with your kid, which is true. It happens in Asia a lot right now. Um, and, you know, obviously call law enforcement right away. Don't just give people money. But I mean, they're coming in through here now, not just on email. They're coming in through text messages. They're coming through phone calls. Um, it is it is a whole new uh, avenue of scammers these days. So if you don't know what it is, you're pretty confident you didn't ask for something. Don't click on it. Don't call back. And most certainly do not hand them any information that can get to any of your money, whether it be credit cards or bank accounts. If you're not sure, you know, call law enforcement or call the FTC. And obviously my office you know, anybody's elected office, you know, would be happy to do, do follow up and 
uh, check with uh, our regulatory agency context to find out if there is something not kosher uh, here. But yeah, and just because the holiday season's over, I know the gift card scam is always still good, you know, out there that you know give us gift cards in exchange for X and Y. I had a friend who had a dog lost. They try to scam them to get give them gift cards in exchange for said dog. Um, you know, I mean, come on, I mean, you know, something is not right here. So if you're questioning about it, you know, you should and just follow those questioning instincts to the end. But uh, tax season's coming. Uh, again, one several favorite ones is, you know, the IRS is looking for, for money. You get deported if you don't give us money. Um, you know, and then you got the hostage-ish type situations like, you know, hey, you know, dad, I broke my leg. I'm in the hospital. You know, you know your kid's somewhere out of state. You know, and, uh, you know give me money now because I, I need to pay for medical bills. Well, hang up and say, okay, I got a bad line. Let me call you back. Right. It's just that simple. Yeah. Just, just verify. Yeah. And you got the state of spoofing is a little bit less, but it's still out there. We see phone numbers that basically your phone number appearing on phone uh, through this reverse calling hack. And uh, you know, you, you're questioning what's going on and, you know, they may pretend to be from like T-Mobile or Rise or AT&T saying, Hey, you know, we're calling you a problem, you know, running a test. Right. So, and, you know, not like I encourage suspicious behavior, but if you're fairly confident you did not ask for something, you probably did it. Exactly. Yeah. Common sense and, uh, you know, check with a, with a trusted friend or relative or law enforcement, like you said. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously go to the FTC website, you know, and the state consumer website and Trinity Jones website. Um, and, you know, there'll be a lot of other helpful tips and information on that. But, you know, like, hey, you know, I'd like to end today's you know, call. I know it's January 4th, the holidays are done, but, you know, we're moving to a new season of Scammers. How do we get a hold of you, Techie? 617 722 2370. 617 722 2370 is the uh, office number. Uh, T A C K E Y dot C H A N. Emmyhouse.gov. Tacky.chan at emmyhouse.gov is my email. Actually, can't find my email for now. Uh, <laughs> very holiday seasons. Actually, see, do see emails. Um, you know, the X accounts at, at Tacky Chan. Uh, obviously, State Representative Tacky Chan Facebook account. And we have tackychan.org for some reference numbers. And uh, malegislature.gov, malegislature.gov. You don't have to ask me for where Bill is. You can find it there. Um, and also watch, you know, all our public hearings and all our formal informal sessions um, at your leisure. Um, and uh, it's actually also a great resource at mass.gov, mass.gov is the state website. Uh, and you know, you just, you know, do a web search, you know, what you're looking for and put mass.gov at the end. Um, you know, to find resources you're looking for at state government. Excellent. Appreciate it as always. And uh, happy new year again. Happy healthy. And we'll happy see you next week. Happy new year. And I'll talk to you in a week's time.